according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. We're covering uh, persuasion and perfection. And uh, then we're ready to move on and gain some ground here tonight. God is spirit. It must be worshiped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God this evening. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, humbling ourselves under His authority and uh, asking for His blessing upon our time of worship. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, You are the God of mercy, the God of all comfort. I thank You for that mercy and comfort. I thank You for the truth that You've supplied for us tonight. Bless our study in Your Word. Open the eyes of our understanding. Give us ears to hear. I thank You, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we want to take some questions. Microphone's ready. So if we have a lead-off person with a question. Um, there was one by email. That was last week. I answered that already. Um, and there was one this morning. Chuck had a question this morning. He said he was going to ask it tonight. Mr. Hagemeyer usually sits up front here. Uh, what was his question? Anybody remember? Yeah, yeah, we talked about the Nephilim last week. Yeah, no, there was another question this morning. I just don't remember. Maybe it'll come to me before we're done tonight. All right. Well, let's take some new questions then. Microphone's ready to go. Going once, going twice. All right. Chris, the other row. Back row. Mary Ellen. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I was Catholic, so I've got to ask this question. Okay. About the Lady of Fatima. Uh-huh. Do you believe in all that? About the, you're talking about Revelation 17 and the... And I the, don't know it, that she appeared at Fatima to the three children, or the two ch- three children, I guess. Oh, the apocryphal book edition to Daniel. I didn't hear the first part of your question, I'm sorry. The Catholics believe so much in Mary. Uh-huh. Being the mother of God, okay, uh-huh. and and um, she appeared to some children in the town of Fatima, F A T I M A. Oh, 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 okay. And I was wondering what your take was on I that. I think fallen angels do a lot of masquerading. First Corinthians talks about Satan who disguises himself as an angel of light, and uh, and so most of the religion in the world is is motivated by fallen angels that are posing as as gods themselves or are uh, impersonating the one true god so uh, mary uh, is a believer and mary is presently in heaven with the lord uh, but mary is not the queen of heaven uh, co-redemptrix of our salvation and mary is not and has never been appearing to people uh, throughout the, the the history of the church so uh, I, th- I think most uh, many i won't say most Many practicing Roman Catholics that I've met over the years have not been believers in Jesus Christ. They've been worshipers of, of the Virgin yes. Mary. And yes. uh, worshipers of the Virgin Mary go to hell. It's uh, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ that receive eternal life. Thank you. Is that, is that blunt enough? Yes. <laughs> okay. And I understand we got a lot of former Catholics. There's a whole planet full of former Catholics that saw truth in the scriptures, and and I'm thankful that they saw truth in the scriptures. All right, uh, front row. Keep the young man running. Yep. Um, My question is about the Sadducees. Mm -hmm. About what time period did they fall out of power? Yeah, well, they really didn't have much power. But well, their temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., so that kind of ended it. Um, and, and really, that, that functionally, that is the end of the Sadducee party. Uh, they were mostly priests. Um, 
those that survived the fall of Jerusalem that went on to live in exile and so forth, they continued to identify as priests, and, but they didn't have a temple, so they didn't have animal sacrifice, they didn't have ritual, they didn't have anything. Um, and really, they were already kind of losing ground to the Pharisee party, they were already losing ground to other things. So when you get into the rabbinic era and you get into the, the medieval era and so forth, uh, scribes or uh, Pharisees, lawyers, uh, rabbis, uh, you know, students of the Torah ended up with a, with a great edge and advantage over any uh, established priesthood that couldn't operate anymore. So, good question though, appreciate that. All right, and uh, Chuck, I could not remember your question from this morning, so you're here in time to ask it. Can we get the microphone over there, please? It was something about Jesus and his humanity, but... Well, actually, the question was about the angels longing to look, long to look into this information. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are they not able to read the Bible? Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're able to read the Bible. Yeah, that's a great question. In, uh, is it First Peter chapter 1 that talks about things in which angels long to look? And... Um, you know, it's interesting because, yeah, 1 Peter 1.10, and uh, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Um, and so that's talking about the Old Testament, talking about what had been revealed in Old Testament times. And uh, the prophets, they wanted to know, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And so, yeah, they, the angels can certainly read the Bible, same as we can read the Bible, but the things that are not yet revealed, that are kept as mystery doctrine, not even the angels have a clue about. And I think that's why. I think God in His wisdom kept certain things as mystery doctrine so that the fallen angels weren't tipped off ahead of time as to different things going on. But Satan already knows he's going to lose in the end, right? He has read the end of the book, yeah. He knows it, but he doesn't believe it. See, that's the thing. You can... We're learning in Hebrews that if you don't unite by faith the information in the Bible, it does you no good. And so uh, Satan, of course, has, doesn't have the capacity to apply faith to the doctrine. Uh, he, can, he can accumulate gnosis. But, but then again, Satan's made a lot of predictions and he thinks he's going to make those come true. Uh, Satan thinks God's a liar, right? And so if God's a liar, why believe anything he has to say? And uh, so it's, it's interesting. I think there's a passage in Ezekiel that says uh, you corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. And so even though Satan is the wisest angel ever to exist, that's been corrupted. And corrupted wisdom is like a, a virus in a supercomputer, you know? It's, it's no good. And uh, so here's Satan, probably the, the, the greatest uh, psychopath in the history of the universe because that wisdom has been corrupted. Yeah. Great question. Now, thank you for that. All right, other questions tonight? Yes, sir. Back to the far left. I am far from far left. Not from my perspective. <laughs> um, kind of to follow up on uh, Chuck's question, then, mm -hmm. uh, whether Satan believes he's going to lose or not. Um, so, I, I don't know, for the lack of a better wording, could, it, could it, he possibly just perceive the you know, revelation as maybe just simply a threat? Kind of like, yeah, right, okay, whatever you said, you're going to do this and do that, but you're just not going to achieve that. I don't think so. He's too smart for that. He, he's seen the literal fulfillment of all those other things. And so I think he's in very real fear uh, for the literal fulfillment of what's coming up. And we're told when he actually gets booted out of heaven in the tribulation, then he, he is thrown to the earth. He has great wrath knowing that his time is short. So uh, a lot of times fallen creatures will know things and they just won't admit them. For the longest time, they know that something's happening. They know it's happening, but they, they lie to themselves and convince themselves. And if you're a good enough liar, you can, you can do that. You can convince yourself of anything, right? And, but when he does get thrown to the earth, Revelation chapter 12 says he's got a great wrath knowing that his time is short. So. All right. Excellent questions tonight. Anything else? All right, we'll go to the far right now. <laughs> I know. So at what point in history does Satan get cast down to the earth? At what point does Satan get thrown down? Mm -hmm. That's a marvelous question um, because there's a le legitimate disagreement about that. 
Um, most people think it's at the midpoint of the tribulation. Um, alternatively, it could be at the very beginning of the tribulation, or alternatively, it could be even prior to the tribulation. It could even be, um, I think, and I'm in a vast major- minority of this view, but I think he is expelled uh, at the rapture of the church. And uh, it says, the Lord himself will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And so uh, it, the involvement of the angels, the archangel in particular, the trumpet, appears to be a military operation. And, um, and it seems, you know, he is the accuser of our brethren who accuses them night and day. It just seems that the, um, the calling of the bride and the wedding supper and the things that we are taking part in um, Satan has no part in that. And so it seems like his expulsion at the beginning to coincide with the rapture would be a natural conclusion. But the language is vague enough in Revelation 12 that you, you can't, no one in fairness can pinpoint it with absolute certainty. Okay? But I have an opinion. I have lots of opinion. And, uh, and I think pinpointing it at the, at the rapture is a, is a, is a smart, smart call on that. Alright, back row then. Let's go to the back row. We're going to have rapture doctrine tonight, too, by the way, so stay tuned. There you go. Okay, when the rapture comes, uh, when the, yeah, the rapture comes, okay, the ones that are raptured up, we are raptured up, okay, we don't, where do we go from there? Do we go to heaven right then, or do we uh, come back with Christ when uh, he said, put his foot on the mountain Olives? We, are we the army that's just with him? Or do they have the, yes to both, yes to both. Yes, we, we meet the Lord in the air. And then he takes us back home to heaven. And that's John 14. He says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. And so when you read John 14, there, there can be no other destination for us just after the rapture other than heaven itself. Because he's, he's been preparing these places for us to live, that's where he's going to take us. And, and we have to be absent for that seven-year tribulation and then a, a period of time leading up to that seven-year tribulation. So the church is absent off, off of the earth while the, the tribulation is happening here on earth. Okay, but when he re- uh, returns on the Mount Olives... Okay. At the end of the tribulation... The end of the tribulation... Right. Uh, uh, is he, the saints don't come with him to declare war. What is the angels... Oh, no, we do. Right. We come we, with him. We come with him. Uh-huh. Okay, just checking. Yep, us and the angels... There's a marvelous promise. We'll see it tonight. Um, so the Lord himself will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then what does it say? It says, thus we shall always be with the Lord. And to me, those are precious. Because, you know, I, I think, you know what I think that means? I think that means we shall always be with the Lord, okay? And so that means when he comes at Armageddon, we're with him. When he sits on the throne in Jerusalem, we're with him. That means wherever he goes, we're his bride, and, uh, and we're with him. And, and that's, a, that's a, a glorious truth. And so um, I love that. And we're going to talk more about that tonight, too. That's coming up in our uh, Philippians material. So. All right, well, let me give a last call then. You've already had two questions. No, I'll give you another one. All right. <laughs> I just want to see young men run to the front row again. All right, Bill, you got our you got our cleanup question here tonight. Um, of course, this has to do with uh, the rapture and tribulation and whatnot and such. Mm-hmm. Um, you had mentioned quite a few weeks ago that we will be witnessing, you know, Christ at the Battle of was it Armageddon or well, well, basically we'll be witnessing him doing battle mm-hmm. to where. Uh, Debbie and I were always taught that we will be partaking in that battle. Um, can you just expound a little bit more on that aspect? Yeah, Revelation 19 says that the armies uh, we follow on white horses. And the only verb that's applied to us is followed. And uh, all the fighting that Revelation 19 speaks of, uh, there is a sword that comes out of his mouth uh, that he uh, deliberately, he personally is the one that lays hold of Antichrist and throws him in the, in the lake of fire. Um, there's no other indication as far as what combat operations you and I might engage in, just from that text alone. So um, as far as anything else is concerned, if, if we have an active part to play, 
Um, I don't know that, that I can prove that in the, in the Scriptures. Yeah. So that's a good question. All right, well join me then in Philippians chapter 1. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate the microphone running. We are dealing with the day of the Lord, and we're talking about beginnings. So let's uh, look at where we are. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And uh, we're right in the, we're smack dab in the middle of this Thanksgiving, and, and we haven't even finished the Thanksgiving yet. It continues on. Even when we get to verse 7, it's still continuing to give the Thanksgiving um, with even more explanations, uh, with, uh, for it is only right for me to think this way about you all. He's still giving Thanksgivings in verse 7, verse 8, and not until verse 9 that he transitions to a future prayer request or an intercession on their behalf. He says, in this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And so we'll deal with that. But we're still talking about the day of Christ Jesus. The final, I think, doctrine or the final meat that we want to we wanna scoop out of verse 6 there focuses on the day of Christ. Uh, so we've dealt with persuasion or confidence and, and the uh, patho applications there. We talk about the beginnings and the completions uh, he who began a good work in you will perfect it. And uh, obviously a beginning is not a perfection. And uh, principles there, let me get to our slide here. Um, on this slide we highlight a beginning is not a perfection, right? I mean it should go without saying, but how many people do you know are content with a good start? You know, say, so, well I'm saved, that's good enough. It's not good enough, all right? Uh, he saved us for a reason, and there is a, a destiny that He laid hold of us for a reason. And we want to lay hold of that for which also we were laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And it was more than just being saved. And so there is a perfection in the activity of epiteleo, which is just beautiful. Speaking about it's an intensive of, of teleo. And uh, epiteleo, that's what God's going to do. He's not just going to finish, He's going to epifinish, okay? And we are going to be perfect when He takes us home. And uh, in any event, Philippians 1.6, Galatians 3.3 are, are great illustrations of epiteleo, and we've been dealing with it, and uh, we're thankful for that. Uh, as we move on, get through some of these studies... Under point eight now, we're looking at the day of Christ. All right, the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus is not a pure synonym for the day of the Lord. Let's understand this. The day of Christ Jesus is used in the New Testament and it is not a synonym for the day of the Lord. They're not the same thing. Now, they may happen roughly at the same time, but they're happening in entirely different realms. And we want to recognize this and we'll see those distinctions here tonight. We spent Sunday actually looking at a lot of Wrath of God stuff, okay? We spent Sunday looking at this point, under subpoint A, the day of the Lord, okay? Yom Yahweh, if you want to call it that. The day of the Lord. What is the great and terrible day of the Lord? The Old Testament prophets contained repeated references to Yom Yahweh, the dead is, or Yom Yehovah, the, the Jehovah, the day of the Lord, right? And uh, from Isaiah to Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, uh, you know, which prophets didn't talk about the day of the Lord? And, you know, I left off some of them, but um, I bet you we could find references to, in, in every prophet to the day of the Lord, because it is. It is that day. It's judgment day. It's the coming kingdom. It's the day of their deliverance, the day of their, of their rescue, but it's also the day of their judgment, see? And so um, these are the things to, to get back to Chuck's question. Uh, the Old Testament prophets really struggled. And, and uh, not only the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, uh, I think they also struggled with the judgment of the Jews and the kingdom to follow. You know, they, they loved passages that talked about kingdom, that talked about glories. They loved passages that talked about Israel at peace and all the Gentiles serving them. Yeah, those are great passages. Preach those. But Passages that talk about judgment and destruction and Jerusalem surrounded and, and enduring to the end so as to be saved, you know, those kind of passages, those aren't popular. You know, we don't want to be crushed. And so clearly you know, you've got a, a dichotomy at work there. How does that work? Well, it's called the day of the Lord, okay? 
Because until Israel is repentant, they cannot have their kingdom. That's why when John the Baptist comes, he comes preaching repentance. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the, uh, all of these warning passages, like I say, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34, we looked at every one of these on, uh, on uh, Sunday. Uh, Jeremiah 46, Ezekiel. Uh, in particular, I mean, if I was to repeat any of these tonight, I'd probably go to, um, go to Joel. We didn't look at all these, did we? We didn't go to Zephaniah or Zechariah or Malachi. I don't recall getting that far. Yeah, so we got, we got more ground to cover on this. But these are day of the Lord passages, okay? And every single one of them is earthly in its scope. Every single one of them centers on there's war coming and Jerusalem is surrounded. And there's a whole lot of death, okay? And, but if you hold on, if you hold on, Yahweh is coming, okay? The Lord is coming. This is the day of the Lord. And the Lord is coming and they will be rescued. They will have a kingdom on the other side of it. And so this, uh, this becomes vital. And that has, all of that is very well known from the Old Testament. And, and that should be foundational to any New Testament study. So that when we start to get introduced to a term like the day of Christ Jesus, we immediately don't get confused and we say, oh, that's different. <laughs> wow, okay, that's different. Because this is something to look forward to. The day of Christ Jesus, wow, it's an exciting thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's an exciting thing, a positive thing. Not a hint of fear, not a hint of wrath, not a hint of judgment, not a hint of armies surrounding Jerusalem. And why would I care anyway? I'm not in Jerusalem. Okay? Um, we have in the church age now, we have a, uh, a reality in which we don't have a holy city, we don't have a, a, a land grant, we don't, we don't, we're not preoccupied with the territory. As Jesus told the, the woman at the well, an hour is coming and now is. When neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, for God is spirit and must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. That we operate in a day and age when, in which you and I are believer priests before the Father. And that uh, we, don't, we don't go to Jerusalem to, to go to a temple to approach a holy place or a holy of holies. You and I operate in the holy place. That's why we have the book of Hebrews. Because you and I operate in the holy of holies. So uh, let's uh, pick this up. Let's go to Zephaniah. Why not? Let's pick it up there. Only because uh, we need more practice finding Zephaniah in our Bibles. Just aim for Habakkuk and go to the next book. All right. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. You've got your final four books of the Old Testament. Zephaniah. And uh, chapter 1, verse 7, verse 8. Verse 7 says... um, and without reading the first six verses, we'll just grab a context for this. Because um, there's some serious warnings here. But all right, so it's the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. So what does that tell you? Who was Hezekiah? Hezekiah was a king. He was a good king. And now here's his great-great-grandson who is of the line of David, who is of the, the royal youths, who could have theoretically been hauled off to captivity with Daniel, right? Um, a little bit early, earlier than that. Uh, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So he, here he is preaching in the days of the last good king. And uh, this is what uh, the Lord says is going to happen. So... Um, you got six verses there. We get to verse 7. It says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Now understand near. What does it mean to be near when you're omnipotent, when you're omniscient, when you're omnipresent? Okay? You know, something we might say something is near if it was in this room, or if it was in this church building, or if it was in this town. You know, we could say uh, something is near if I can drive there in less than an hour, okay? Uh, we might say something is near, I mean, if you're used to driving, you might say Houston is near. I can be there in three hours, two and a half hours, you know. Uh, what's near to God? 
okay? Not only spatially in geographic sense, but also temporally. If something is soon, okay, to a three-year-old, soon is, is five minutes or less, okay? Uh, when you're an adult, soon might be this year, next year, you know, a couple years from now. You know, uh, soon to God, when a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day, or as a watch in the night, that even uh, a thousand years could be like a three-hour watch in the night as far as God's timetable is concerned. So don't get hung up on the idea of soon or the idea of near, okay? Some people get really wrapped up about that in, uh, in Revelation, behold, I come quickly. And uh, they think that that must mean that Revelation had to be finished in the first century. That's crazy. Okay? Same thing here. The day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated His guests. Then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes, the king's sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. And so what are we dealing with here? Is this talking about the church at all? I'm reading, by the way, from Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Okay? The king's sons. Who are we talking about? Because Zephaniah is a king's son. He is a, an heir of the house of David. He is, uh, he is of the, the royal lineage, a descendant from Hezekiah. And he's preaching to his own family. That's not fun. Okay? You know, a prophet has no honor in his own town. Imagine preaching to your family. And it's an unhappy message like this. The house of David needs repentance. And he's preaching it. And so um, this is what it's about. I will punish on that day all those who leap on the temple threshold, who fill the house of the Lord with violence and deceit. On that day, declares the Lord, there will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter. All of this is, is Jerusalem in its, in its context. It's earthly in its context. It's a time of judgment for the Jewish people. It has nothing to do with the body of Christ. From chapter 1 we can go over to uh, chapter, oh wait, we've got verse 14 and verse 18 as well in this chapter. Verse 14 says near. Alright, let's see. We'll just grab the rest of this. Uh, verse uh, uh, 12, it will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit who say in their hearts the Lord will not do good or evil. Uh, you, you talk about postmodernism. Here's the thought right there. Okay. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder, the houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses but not inhabit them, and plant vineyards but not drink their wine. This is earthly judgment upon Jerusalem in the end times. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly in the, in the days of Josiah, king of Judah. Alright? So understand this. This is clearly it's a second advent prophecy and it's given you know, 600 years before the first advent. Uh, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. The day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. They don't sound very happy. I can't really reconcile that with he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Okay? So when we're studying the day of Christ Jesus in, uh, in the New Testament, mainly in uh, 1 Corinthians and Philippians, okay? It is us. It's, it's a day that speaks to the redemption of the bride. It speaks of the rapture of the church. It speaks of our being called home to glory. It speaks of our judgment seat of Christ. It, seems, it speaks of our full reward. It is entirely positive. The day of Christ Jesus is entirely church, entirely heavenly, and entirely positive. Whereas the day of the Lord is entirely Israel and the Gentile nations. It is earthly and it is not positive. Okay? It, is, it is wrath unfolded until such time as it sparks their repentance and it brings in the kingdom. So that's Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah chapter 2. Um, Alright. I'm tempted to read the rest of chapter 1 but I'll, I'll speed this along. Okay? Uh, chapter 2. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather, O nation without shame. Who's he talking to? Not the church. Talking to a nation without shame. I think it's sad. Josiah was the last good king and he instituted all these great reforms. By and large, his population didn't like it. Before the decree takes effect, the day passes like the chaff. 
before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out His ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And there will be. There'll be a faithful remnant. They're going to be stashed away. In fact, fairly early in the the whole process, after the rapture, uh, there's going to be the saving of the 144,000. There are going to be Jewish evangelists, 12,000 from 12 tribes. A remnant that God preserves. All right, so that's uh, chapter 2. Zechariah, Zechariah 14.1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. In other words, it's a great reversal. They've been plundered for all this time and then they get to plunder the plunderers. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Does that have anything to do with the church? (laughs) You know, can I reconcile that with Philippians chapter 1? He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Nothing about ravishing women or plundering cities or the fall of Jerusalem. Or You understand, this is apples and that's why it's frustrating to me when depending on the commentary you're reading or depending upon the, the Bible dictionary that you're reading uh, you will find a, a fair amount of them, a fair number of them say, well it's just another way of saying the day of the Lord. Okay? The only way that they overlap, the only way that they coincide is neither one can happen until the rapture of the church. And then you and I get to go to heaven and experience the day of the Lord when he who began a good work in you will perfect it. Jerusalem, on the other hand, the Jews and the Gentiles, the nations, they're going to experience the day of the Lord here on earth. Okay? And that's what we're looking at. And that's why I'm taking this time. Is it redundant? Is it tedious? Yes. But it's overwhelming when you go through the tedious, redundant, overwhelming testimony of the Old Testament. By the way, as long as we're in Zechariah 14, understand this, um, that we're going to have to flee, or that they will have to flee, I'm sorry, the Jews will have to flee. Because just when all the armies of the earth have surrounded Jerusalem, Yahweh says, okay, I've got you where I want you. (laughs) Right? And then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations when He fights on a day of battle. And that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. That's a huge difference between the second advent and the rapture. In the rapture we meet the Lord in the air. The second advent He lands on the earth. And we know where He's going to land. On the Mount of Olives. In front of Jerusalem on the east. And uh, the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley that half the mountain moves to the north, half the mountain moves to the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountain will reach to Ezel. Yes, you will flee. See? What a way of escape. God always provides a way of escape. Isn't that beautiful? And even if they think there's no way out, well, just wait. There's a brand new valley right on the way. (laughs) Okay? Just because it's not there yet, it'll be there just in time. Just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Holy angels and holy resurrected bride. The church. Okay? Holy ones. Of course, Zechariah knows nothing of the church. It's a mystery. Zechariah knows nothing about resurrected saints in Christ. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. Makes it easier to escape if you can flee in the darkness, right? They can't see you coming. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about at the evening time there will be light. And then living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, the other half towards the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. You know, there are going to be topographical changes. that all, The whole Jerusalem plateau will be lifted up. It has to be. It has to be much larger than it is today because the Temple Mount today is not big enough for Ezekiel's temple when you read the dimensions of Ezekiel's temple. And, uh, and by the way, with living waters flowing out, half going east, half going west, eastern sea, western sea. By the way, you know this can't be new earth because the new earth doesn't have a sea. This is millennium. Right? Pay attention to those kind of details. 
The millennium is one thing where the youth dies at 100, but in the new earth, there's no more death. We have a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ and no more death. That's on the new earth with no more seed. And um, we have uh, other things here in Zechariah 14, by the way. There will be plagues still. It's kind of gross if you read verse 12 and you can read about eyes rotting in their sockets. Um, so that's kind of fun. And then verse 16, it will come about that any who are left of all the nations, there won't be many that survive Armageddon. But those who do will be believers in Jesus Christ and they will get to enter into the millennial kingdom. And of the handful of Americans left over, if any, uh, if whatever this nation is known in the millennium, um, they will have an appointment every year to go worship Jesus Christ. And they won't need the United Nations in New York. (laughs) They're going to go to Jerusalem. And the king of every country on planet earth will go to Jerusalem to worship Jesus Christ. At least that's what they're supposed to do. Some won't. So come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem. It doesn't say if, it says which ones. Whichever ones don't. You know, after 10 years, after 20 years, after 100 years. I think as we proceed through the thousand year occupation, as we proceed through the thousand year reign of Christ, there's going to be more and more and more Gentile hostility, Gentile resentment. And whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Get the rain shut off. I, they love this in Ukraine. I asked the college students there, I said, you know, you ever had uh, the landlord turn off your water? <laughs> you know, how bad is that, you know, if you're just talking about an apartment or uh, a house or something and the landlord cuts your water off or the city shuts off your, your utilities? Imagine an entire kingdom, a country, a nation state, and Jesus Christ says, that's it, no more rain. You're in for a drought because your king did not come and worship Jesus Christ for the Feast of Booths. And then plagues. You know, if, if you're having water issues, then disease comes, and here we have it. In the family, if, if, for example, the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Anyway, there's more there. That's Zechariah 14. Let's go to Malachi. Malachi chapter 4. What's Malachi? The last book of the Old Testament. What's chapter 4? The last chapter of Malachi. What are we looking at here? Almost the last verse. There's verses 5 and 6. All right. Um, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's the last word of the Old Testament here. What's he going to do? He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Isn't that something? The last word of the Old Testament is curse. Turn the page and what do we got? (laughs) Ah, the birth of Jesus. Good news. All right. So... If this is uh, not enough to convince you that uh, it has nothing to do with the church, let's look at some New Testament passages. Because see, the New Testament also references this day. The New Testament talks about the day of the Lord for Israel as something that you and I don't have to worry about. The New Testament epistles also reference this day as something the church doesn't have to look for. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, and 2 Peter 3, verse 10 and 13. And this should be so self-evident, it just bugs me to tears that um, believers with sloppy hermeneutics end up um, muddying what should be otherwise clear. 1 Thessalonians chapter two, uh, chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and, and 
What are you looking at when you're looking at chapter 5? You're looking at verses that come immediately after chapter 4. Okay? You're looking at content that is given immediately after the rapture content is given. That's not an accident. There, there's, a, there's a purpose in all this. Okay? So chapter 4, rapture doctrine, verses 13 to the end of the chapter, 13 to 18. I've been quoting it a lot tonight. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe, and we do, that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Not every, unbe- not every believer that ever died, but those of the church age, those in Jesus. So Paul and Peter, the apostles, Martin Luther, my mom, every believer in the church age who's currently dead, when the trumpet sounds, they're going to return with Christ. Then, but not David, not Moses, not Noah, not the Old Testament believers, okay? Just church. Falling asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. See, the, the problem is the Old Testament saints, they've got to wait to, they gotta wait to Revelation 20 to get their resurrection. And so there's a fear that, you know, living saints at the trumpet might precede. Don't worry about that. Jesus is not going to come for a partial bride. He's going to take His entire bride. That includes every believer from Pentecost to rapture. So we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, a split second later, well it doesn't say that, then, a minute later, an hour later. We don't, it don't, we don't know. Then. Could you imagine? If, what if it was an hour later? Could you imagine? All it says is then. What if the dead in Christ rise first and we have an hour on this planet with resurrected church age saints? Okay? My mom would be in my office because that's where the urn's sitting right now. That'd be kind of fun. Oh, hi, mom. <laughs> wow. We don't know. Is it a split second later? Is it an hour later? Is it, it just says then. And the language of then just shows sequence and does not exactly have the precision. Not that I think it's probably just mere moments. You know, maybe long enough to realize what you're looking at and then, you know, three seconds later then there we go. We will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Why do we meet Him in the air? Because He's not coming to the earth yet. Okay? Otherwise, if He was going to come to the earth, why wouldn't He just gather us to Mount of Olives? We can meet Him when He lands. Why do we have to launch? Because He's not coming to the earth. He's only coming to meet us in the air and to escort us back home. See, the groom always goes to fetch His bride and bring her to His home. All right. And we take his name, by the way, because we're sexist that way. All right. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now pay attention to that because that's, that's important. That's what closes that segment. We get to chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 11. And how does this end? Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Do you see how the language of 5.11 is parallel to the language of 4.18? There's a reason for that. So in chapter 4 we got rapture doctrine, in chapter 5 we got second advent doctrine. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, or shall we say Old Testament biblical eschatology, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So now Paul's talking about the day of the Lord. Okay? This is a new topic. This is on the other side of the therefore comfort one another with these words. Alright? So what, what is it that follows the rapture? Day of the Lord. For you yourselves full, know full well the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while they are saying peace and safety. You know who they are. <laughs> yeah, those guys. They. You know what they say. I mean, we use the same medium all the time, right? We talk about they. They, 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 they. Who's they? Well, they is not you. That's huge. They is not you. 
There is a monster distinction here in this text between they and you. They are saying peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Not you, them. Like, a la- like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Man, too bad for them, right? But you, brethren, ah, are not in darkness. The day should not or would not overtake you like a thief. We have no part in any of this. The thief comes, but we're not there. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. We have our eyes open to the reality, and the reality is we have no part of that. We get raptured before any of that comes upon this earth. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, that's us in Christ, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. All those verses you looked at on that slide. That's wrath. And we're not destined for that. But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, that's an echo back from chapter 4, remember? Those who have died in Christ are asleep. We will live together with Him. So it's another reminder. We're not destined for that day of the Lord. Therefore encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Okay? So rapture doctrine is for comfort. Comfort one another with these words. And uh, here's encouragement and edification in, in uh, 511. So to me, that's clear. That's beautiful. That's simple. Rapture in chapter 4, day of the Lord in chapter 5, they're different things. Just like day of Christ Jesus is not day of the Lord. We go to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now in between... They receive 1 Thessalonians, everything's fine. Then they receive a letter supposedly from Paul. But it was a forgery. And Paul writes them now, 2 Thessalonians, to say, don't pay attention to that garbage. You know better than that. Don't be disturbed. Okay? So 2 Thessalonians 2.2, don't be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. They get a letter, it's got Paul's name on it, and it says, oh, I was wrong, sorry. There is no rapture, you're going to go through the day of the Lord. And we're here already, here's the day of the Lord. No, don't fall for that. Don't fall for that at all. Back up to verse 1. We request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. What's that? That's rapture. That's rapture of the church. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. John 14 was to say, when I come again I will receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. Okay? We will meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. So verse 1 is rapture. We request of you brethren with regard to the rapture, don't be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed. Okay? Think it through. Cycle the doctrine. You know better. Why is it that Satan wants to pressure you and make you react in fear? He doesn't want you to stop and slow down and cycle the doctrine and think things through. Claim the promises by faith. No, it's high pressure. Now, now, now. You've got to do something. Don't just stand there and do something. Right? Like a shifty used car salesman. You know. He doesn't want you to go home and think about it. He wants you to stay right there and don't think about it. He wants you to stay right there and just do what he tells you because he'll do the thinking. Okay? Don't be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed. Did I just compare Satan to used car salesman? All right. Probably not entirely fair to Satan. All right. (laughs) Either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come unless the departure comes first. Now I know you have apostasy there. Okay? But when you're looking at verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3, we've got a sequence here. 
with respect to the rapture, don't be shaken to think that you're in the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord cannot come until the rapture comes first. Called the departure comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Antichrist cannot be revealed until the rapture of the church. So take that term apostasy and cross that out. The, the Greek is apostasia. Apostasy is not even a translation, it's a transliteration. It means departure. And it could be a doctrinal departure, in which case apostasy is a fine translation. But it can be a, a, a physical departure, a geographical departure, in which case departure is a fine translation. And there we have it. In fact, Tommy Ice uh, many times will, will tell you, I learned this from him years ago, the first seven English translations all use the word departure. It was not until the King James translation that it was rendered with apostasy. Okay? And then English Bibles ever since have kind of gone with that, uh, with that pattern. But unless the departure comes first, the man of laws is revealed the sin of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now that has nothing to do with the church. That has everything to do with the day of the Lord. We understand what Antichrist is going to do. We know about the defiling of the Jewish temple. Doesn't bother us any. It's not our temple. But it sure bothers the Jews. That's their temple. That's their apostasy. That's what they're dealing with when they're signing their treaty with Antichrist, when he betrays it halfway through, when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, when it's being trampled, when the women are being ravished. Okay? All right. And do you not remember while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. What restrains him now? It's a thing, it's a neuter thing. A what in verse 6. But it's a who, it's a he who in verse 7. So a neuter singular, what restrains him now? But a masculine singular, he who restrains him now in verse 7. What do we know that's both a what and a he? A neuter thing, but also a person. God the Holy Spirit. That's the, that's the natural understanding of this text. The role of God the Holy Spirit in the church age is one of restraint. But at the rapture of the church, the Holy Spirit is done restraining. That restraint is gone. The church is gone. The bride is with the Lord in heaven. And what's left behind on this earth when there's no more restraint? <sighs> Satan's permissive will freedom to unleash his Antichrist and begin, uh, begin what he's doing, see. And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Boy, let me tell you. You know, do you know how much delusion is, is controlling this world right now? And we haven't even reached the strong delusion. This is just the weak delusion. This is just the, the rehearsal. Then so he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. I told you, Jesus Christ personally defeats Antichrist on the field of battle. The one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs of false wonders, with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence. Isn't that amazing? Verse 11, that's still future. That hasn't happened yet. And look how deluded this world is even without that. They're sold out now. They think everything, think of how many lies and they swallow them and they parrot them and they preach them as if they're facts and we're the, we're the nut jobs, right? We say in the beginning God. They say in the beginning big bag, Okay? They've got all these things that are just fact. Climate change is fact. Humans are destroying the planet. That's fact in their universe. Perverts are normal. Okay? That's fact in their universe. And how many more lies? You, you know, um, capitalism is evil and socialism works. That's fact. The Bible says otherwise. Okay? And we haven't even reached the strong delusion yet. Imagine. You think uh, being a believer in the church age is rough? Imagine when Satan is unrestrained and um, you refuse the mark. 
Man, they got a tough road in front of them. All right. And notice, they, 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 they. Verse 11, they. God will send upon them a deluding influence. They will believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, because God, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you. You see that? We got all those they's and then we, we're back to you. Okay? You. So it's a beautiful thing. Uh, finally, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 and verse 13. I knew we'd get through this tonight. I suspected we might. I never know. All right. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. I think we've read that before, haven't we? Again and again and again and again. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. That's the day of the Lord. That's not the day of Christ Jesus. That's the day of the Lord. Okay? But according to His promise, are we looking for that? Are we looking for the, the Lord coming as a thief and the elements being burned? We're not looking for any of that. What are we looking for? According to His promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And since we look for these things, let's be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. And let's grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And let's, here's a verse I don't usually read, verse um, um, 17, you therefore beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing this beforehand, how do we know tribulational stuff beforehand? Because the church is beforehand. Knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. What's the danger of being carried away? All millennialism. Be- becoming a mocker. And where's the promise of His coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all has continued since it has been since the beginning of creation. And when they say this, these mockers that come with their mocking, falling after their own lust, and when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. Okay? That's a powerful chapter, and I wish uh, these amillennialists would, would pay more attention. Because I think, sadly, I, I don't doubt their salvation. Okay? Because I've prayed with them, I know them. They're just confused right now. And they're struggling with their doctrine. They'll, uh, the Lord will get them through it. Get them over that hump, <laughs> okay? You've got a Greek hump you've got to get over. Other folks have a amillennialism hump they've got to get over. And, uh, and they will. God will get them there. Because in the meantime, though, they really they run the risk of falling into this mocking circumstance. They don't want to be there. Saying, where is the promise of His coming? You know, looking at Revelation 1 is saying, oh, the time is near. Yeah, it's near. But it was near for Zephaniah also. Relax about that. Don't be so wrapped up over what these preterists are telling you that, oh, because the day is near, it has to be finished in 70 AD. It has to be finished in the first century. That the, the living readers of John's uh, book in the first century must have been alive to see the coming of the Lord. That's a fallacy. And when you plunge into that, you end up, I think, in a, in a mocking way, um, judging the Scriptures. All right. Well, the New Testament epistles reference another day, the day of Christ. This has a positive anticipation of being face-to-face with Jesus Christ. And we'll go through these on Sunday. 1 Corinthians 1.8, 1 Corinthians 5.5, 2 Corinthians 1.14, and then everything else is in Philippians. Philippians 1.6, Philippians 1.10, Philippians 2.16. And the coming day of Christ, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. And that beautiful, wonderful, glorious, magnificent day of Christ, uh, it has no armies surrounding Jerusalem or wrath or judgment or death or plundering, you know, ravishing women or none of that. We have great things to look forward to in the coming day of Christ. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for the blessings we have to study to show ourselves approved. 
Thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. And others, Father, we're praying for, we've got some loved ones and they're, uh, they're wrestling with their eschatology at the moment. But Father, uh, you're faithful. Your Spirit is faithful. You can teach. And I thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.